Please be seated. Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. Today we are in chapter 13 as we continue a series of sermons on the life of David, a man after God's own heart. And today we come to one of the more, probably one of the most sad passages in the entire Bible. I don't think I would ever preach this chapter if I wasn't going through the book of 2 Samuel. This is just an ugly chapter. And given the time of the year and the season, it's not really what uh, I would choose to focus on, but it comes next. And we're going to see how Nathan's words to David after David responded to thou art the man in his dealings with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite and the cover-up. Um, Nathan told David the sword would never depart from his house. And here we're going to begin to see those words fulfilled and come to life. And it's sort of one of those chapters in the Bible that, you know, have you ever been told by another person, you don't want to look at that because if you look at that, you can never unsee that. I remember when I was a boy, about 10 years old, I had a paper route. And one of my stops on the paper route was I went into a beauty shop that had a sliding glass door. And so I was in a hurry because I wanted to get through as fast as I could so I could count my money and go buy something. And so, you know, I'm a 10-year-old boy, you know, that's my world. And so I deliver the paper inside, I get paid, I turn to leave, and as I approached the door, I did not realize somebody had closed it after me, it was still open, and I hit that door and shattered that door. And I remember several women jumped up who were having their hair done, and one of them screamed, and I remember sitting down in the chair, and there were cuts like on the outside of the front part of my leg. They were like not real bad cuts. And so one woman was looking at it and she said, oh, it doesn't, look, it doesn't look that bad. And then she turned my right leg over and it smiled at her. And she said, don't look, don't look. And she jerked her soapy, hairy towel off of her head, wrapped it around my leg, twisted it so that I couldn't see it. And I remember my dad showed up. He picked me up, put me in the car, took me to the doctor. When they started unwrapping it, my dad said, you don't want to see that. I looked at that, and I can see it in my mind today as much as the day I saw it. Well, when we look at this chapter, it sort of reverberates with that kind of picture. So that said, hear now the word of the Lord as we read chapter 13 of 2 Samuel. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a long time, or after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Amnon was her half-brother. Absalom was her full brother. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. 
But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab. Doesn't always, there's always a Jonadab in the picture. The son of Shimea, David's brother, David's nephew. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. I hear Genesis 3. And he said to him, Oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard this morning, or morning after morning? Will you not tell me, Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent uh, home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this thing is wrong, and sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door. Let me make one little correction here. The word woman is not in the text, and the normal meaning of that phrase would be, Put this thing away from me. Put this thing away from me. She was trash to him. Now she was uh, wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus, thus were the virgin daughters of the kings dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she wept. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister, he is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. 
But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom, Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let's not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, but uh, I have command, have I not commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on their way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they've killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him and by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And soon after he finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled, fled and went to Geshur. And was there three years, and the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that the Holy Spirit, the one who breathed these words out and breathed them into the hearts of the biblical writers, would uh, at the same time illumine and enlighten us to be able to understand the meaning of what we're looking at here and how it relates to our lives in 2022 uh, in, in very concrete and specific ways. And we pray that above all, even in all of this mess, we may see that you are our strength and our redeemer. And we pray in Christ's name, 
Amen. What a mess of a story. What a mess. And I guess the question that initially came to mind when I read this chapter in particular was this. Is there any hope at all for these people? I mean, it all just seems so hopeless, so beyond recovery or repair, and it's a horrible story. And it's included in the canon or in our Bible for many reasons. And today we want to try to understand what those reasons are, even though this is a story of perversion, it's a story of revenge and vengeance, and it's a story of exile. And none of those things are positive. Uh, this is uh, not a sermon on how to live your best life now. This is a sermon. Somebody said that earlier, didn't they? Stuck in my mind over here. Uh, but as you look at this story, it's compelling on a number of levels. But the first thing I would say about this story is, no sooner has Nathan the prophet predicted dark times for David's family than this pr uh, prediction starts becoming enfleshed and fulfilled. Despite the somewhat encouraging ending to the last chapter, with the birth of Solomon and the final defeat of Amnon, the chapter begins to fulfill Nathan's prophetic word to David. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. 2 Samuel 12, 11. First, David's eldest son, Amnon, grows lustfully obsessed with his beautiful half-sister. Tamar, who was the full sister of Absalom and, Absalom and a very beautiful woman. Amnon devises a plan to feign or fake an illness and have Tamar wait on him, and which he does, he seizes her, he rapes her, and then he throws her out of the home. It's all very violent. And she's a victim here, a horrible victim of a horrible sin, sin far worse than you can imagine. It's incest, it's rape, and it's horrible. And so Amnon does this, and her brother discovers that Absalom, and he does nothing about it for two years, but later in, later on, avenges this particular death. And so David gave up his plan to bring justice to Ab Absalom, and Absalom goes to live with his grandfather in uh, Gershur. And so first, let's focus upon this rape of Tamar and just sort of look at some of the things the writer includes. Uh, Amnon had a, a lustful obsession over his beautiful half-sister Tamar. Amnon was born to David's wife, Ahinoam. And Tamar and Absalom were children of another wife of David named Maacah, a foreign princess from Geshur. Amnon's fixation on Tamar was so great that he made himself ill over it. As a virgin daughter of the queen, it is possible that Tamar did not interact with him at all. They probably lived in separate homes. They had different mothers. And so it wasn't like one big, great, happy family living as a clan and a dynasty, but rather there were separate 
they were separated from one another. He had at least seen her. He knew she was beautiful, but she was usually well-guarded. She lived in the women's quarters, and it made it very hard for Amnon to act on his obsession with her. However, he, de he decided to make a move. And it just so happened there was a guy named Jonadab there, the son of David's brother Shemiah, that is a nephew of David, who proposes a plan for Amnon to pretend that he would be ill, uh, seek his father to allow Tamar to come and nurse him back to health, and then uh, advise a way that Amnon could spend time with Tamar. Regardless of the plan, David agrees to Amnon's request and orders his daughter Tamar to go to Amnon's house and prepare a meal for him. If you look very closely at this story, you're noticing that David is becoming more and more passive. David is becoming more and more dull. And he's, he's living in the backwash of those consequences and maybe feels like and that there's no way he can take a stand because what he's done is the worst possible thing someone can do. And so how can he uh, question his children when he himself has done something worse? I'll tell you why he could. Because the Bible is God's word. And the Bible clearly teaches in Leviticus and in portions of Deuteronomy that it is a great sin against God to have relations with a sister if you're a brother, or a half-sister if you, she has the same mother or father. And so as a result of that, he knows he is violating not only natural law, but also our creational ordinances, but he's violating the law of God. And David doesn't know, apparently, that anything would be going on out of place, but it's, it's a conceived in the mind of Jonadab. He's referred to here as crafty. Uh, you remember in the garden, the serpent was what? More crafty? And crafty is sneaky and coming up with plans to subvert and go around custom and law. And so David agrees to it. Tamar does go to Amnon's house. She does prepare a meal for him. And ironically, David inadvertently aids in this terrible sin, this assault, this violent rape of his own daughter. Tamar obeys her father. She does prepare the meal. We saw that. She attempts to serve the food. Amnon refuses to eat. Instead, Amnon orders everybody to leave, and he requests that Tamar serve him in his bed, no doubt appealing to his illness as the reason for this strange request. Now, not too many people eat in bed, and if you ever eat in a bed I own, I'll never sleep in it after. But apparently, he was sick, and that's why it happened. Amnon orders everybody to leave. He requests that Tamar serve him in his bed, and as a result of that, she agrees to his request. She brings the food to the bedroom. Instead of letting her serve him, however, Amnon grabs her and demands that she sleep with him. Demands it. Tamar refuses and pleads with Amnon not to rape her, warning her, 
attacker, that it would be a disgrace not only to her, but it would ruin his reputation as well. Finally, bargaining for her life, she suggests that the father would give him to her as a wife if he would only ask. She's buying time because she knew David would never do that. But the woman is in the midst of being raped and assaulted. And so what is she going to do? I think in this text, especially afterwards, she acts with great courage. She's probably one of the unsung heroes in the Bible. But in this moment, she's overpowered. And though what he does to her is outlawed in biblical legislation. She's buying time. She is so desperate to stop her attacker that she fabricates another option for him. After all, earlier we're told that there was um, nothing Amnon do to could, that could fulfill his obsession for her, which seems to contradict the idea that he could simply ask the king for her hand in marriage. Furthermore, Tamar's statement that such a thing should not be done in Israel suggests clearly the law that siblings could not marry. Tamar's arguments failed to convince Amnon from abandoning his planned rape. And the deed is narrated briefly, emphasizing the quick and violent nature of the act by using three verbs in a row. He seized her, he raped her, he bedded her. Some of you will not like what the literal Hebrew says. And I won't say it today, but it's a word commonly used for intercourse. And Tamar's arguments fail to convince him he does all of this, and this use of the three verbs that are used here to describe the rape is very similar to other rapes listed in the Bible. Dinah, in Genesis 34, where the rapist takes her to bed and rapes her. And so, in the the most amazing thing is what happens next. Tamar hated her. I mean, Amnon hated her. Instead of having increased affection for Tamar, this beautiful woman, now he hated her and, in fact, hated her more intensely than he had lusted before her, before uh, the crime. The sudden change of heart of Amnon could perhaps be due to the fact that now he's beginning to realize the gravity of what he has done and the consequences that could follow, for example, the wrath of Absalom and his father David. And the rapist, in some sense, blames, of all people, his victim. Isn't that the way things are today? That the victim gets blamed? And in this new hatred of Tamar, Amnon adds insult to injury and orders her out of his house, pouring ultimate salt in an ultimate wound. As Tamar pleads with him <coughs> that he's not to force her to leave, which she claims would be a greater wrong than the rape itself, while from the modern viewpoint, the chance to get away from your rapist would be welcoming in this ancient Near Eastern context, the turn of events could result in other further victimizing the victim. Recalling mosaic legislation surrounding premarital sexual relations discussed above, as we talked about, Amnon's actions here are a clear violation, and Amnon is now obliged to provide her, that is Tamar, the security she would need. 
The man in such instances had no choice but to pay a bride price and marry the woman. Seeing as Tamar is not betrothed to anyone, she wants Amnon to take responsibility and, like the rapist, marry her so that she is not left destitute and outside a family structure for the rest of her life. Do you see how horrible what this man has done to this woman? And all she's doing is doing what her father told her to do, to go and serve someone. Do you see how evil and wicked what this man has done, driven by his own lust? But do you also hear the echo of David sending for Bathsheba, bringing her to himself and taking her? It's wicked, incredibly evil. And so, after having created an elaborate scheme to bring her there against his will, he now sends her away, even locks her out of the house. Amnon's opinion of Tamar is evident in his command to his servants, get this woman out of my sight, literally get this thing out of my sight. I have used her, she's now trash to me. I don't want her anymore. By the way, it's always the earmark of lust and not love. Once lust gets satiated, it wants distance from the victim. He wanted her gone. She is trashed to him. He wants no more to do with her. This is David's son. This is the current heir to the throne. What a guy, huh? And what is more, we are told, after this, that she wails loudly. She puts ashes on her head, and she wore a special robe reserved for virgin daughters of the king, and now she tears that uh, garment, symbolizing that she has suffered a great loss, and it serves as a public signal to all observers, drawing attention to the crime. While Amnon probably wanted his crime covered up, like David covered up his sin, Tamar does not let it remain a secret. She shows amazing courage by doing this. And when her brother Absalom finds her and he quickly surmises what has happened and he takes in his sister who is so hurt and desolate, the fact that Absalom so quickly guessed who it was that raped his sister, there must have been some sort of hostile history between the two. Furthermore, the ease at which Absalom guessed Amnon's involvement cast David in a really bad light. If Absalom perceived that Amnon was a threat to Tamar, the king should have realized something was up with Amnon's request for Tamar to wait on him. In attempts to comfort his devastated sister, Absalom urges her to take this thing to heart. Now that sounds callous and cold, doesn't it? You need to take this thing to heart. Well, what else is she doing? She's taken it to heart. She's torn her gown. She's put ashes on her head. She's wept and wailed out in public. So what in the world could he mean by that? Well, I think in an attempt to help her, which at first blush seems like really empty comfort to a rape victim, Absalom's next words, however, may suggest that Tamar understood him to say that he would avenge her. 
Absalom remains Tamar, that he is your brother. In other words, what Absalom may be suggesting that, word any other man, I would avenge your honor at once, but since he is your brother and mine, I have to bide my time. And what Absalom is saying here is regardless, Tamar lived the life of a desolate woman from here on out, living in the house of her brother Absalom, one may wonder why Tamar does not go back to her father's house. Some think because a raped daughter is a reproach to her father's honor, a living reminder of his failure. Her choice to stay with Absalom reflects poorly on the king, but reflects well on Absalom. And that may be true. She may have done it to honor her father, that she did not want to cast aspersions and reproach upon his reputation, which was already not really good. When David hears about this, he's furious, but he does nothing. He does nothing. What kind of father is that? What kind of person is that? But given the king's history of being a hothead, when David felt affronted, it th in this case, he's morally compromised here. Maybe he doesn't have the nerve to act because of his own sin. And his own, he, he now seems to lack any capacity to do that. And David's lack of action at the rape of his daughter recalls uh, other instances in the Bible where rape victims are left as victims and not protected. While the king does nothing at this point, neither does Absalom. His quiet rage, however, is seen in his refusal to even speak to his brother Amnon. Absalom hated him for violating his sister. Now, in verses 21 to 39, which is a rather large section, I'm not going to be as detailed with this, Absalom moves to exact revenge on his brother. Remember, Amnon was the firstborn. Actually, there was one older than him, uh, David's first son, but apparently he dies or something happens because you never hear his name again. And so Amnon is now the heir apparent to the throne. And since Amnon, Amnon was heir apparent to the throne. It's possible that Adam, uh, Absalom's motives for murdering Amnon were not solely out of vengeance. With Amnon gone, he would be the next in line to the throne. Here we get the palace intrigue. Absalom was technically the third-born son, which Kiliab, being second in line, However, the fact that Kiliab is never mentioned after his birth or any other narrative suggests that he died before this. In this chapter, we see many of David's qualities reflected in his children. Like David, Absalom and Tamar are both good-looking people. Like David, Tamar displays eloquent, eloquent argumentation in the whole rape scenario. It's amazing how this girl could think on her feet and what she could say. Amnon takes what he lusts after, like David before him, and Absalom orders his servants to murder for him, like David did with Uriah the Hittite. However, while many of David's qualities are reflected in his children, his bravery is evidently not one of them. All the king's sons flee at the murder of Amnon. So while they're on the way home, of course, Jonadab shows up again and reassures the king that all his sons are not dead, even though that was the rumor. And I often wonder if Jonadab did that to sort of soften the blow. 
First let him know that everybody's dead, then come tell him only one's dead, and maybe that would slow down his reaction. He was very shrewd. But Absalom flees. He leaves. The king's sons arrive in Jerusalem. Everybody's in tears. They're mourning their brother. They're shaken up from this horrifying incident. But Absalom leaves. He goes into exile. He does exactly what David did when Saul was after him. You just see the mirroring going on here. You look at the opening quote in the bulletin. I don't like that quote too much. That may, may make some of you read it. But it's true as far as it goes. That some of the things we see in our own children are things we wish we had mortified in ourselves, in our own sanctification. We see traits in them that hurt us because we see them in ourselves. And boy, do David's kids mirror back to him so much of what has been done. Absalom here is acting exactly like David did under the threat of Saul. David goes to live with a, a Gentile king for a while. You remember that. And so it's interesting that he flees and he remains there for three years and the concluding verse has been understood in different ways and difficult to translate. During Ab Absalom's exile, David longed to go to Absalom. Now, why did David long to go to him? He knew where he was. The Hebrew is not very clear. David's longing seems to be a longing to bring Absalom to justice, not a father's affectionate longing for his son. A better translation might be the king's, long, king's longing to march against Absalom was spent because he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. I guess he got over it in a way of speaking. And so the king was longing to see Absalom, and Robert Alter, the great Hebrew scholar, says, an, uh, an abatement of hostility against Absalom rather than a longing for him makes much more sense in terms of what follows after. The rest of the next seven chapters deal with Absalom. What a way to make his entrance upon the biblical stage, so to speak. So what in the world is the point of this story being in the Bible? Is it just for me as a preacher to bring judgment upon them for their heinous sins that are uh, enough to make a sailor blush or uh, 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 that are horrible? Nobody reads this unmoved. It, it should cause outrage. We should be like David responding to the story that uh, Nathan the prophet told him about the king who had flocks and flocks of sheep and rams, who, who steals the one precious ewe, uh, lamb, of this man who he regarded almost as a child in order to feed an incoming visitor. And David says that man should be seized. We, we have the same reaction to the story. But I think there's a couple of things I want to say in closing about this story that I think uh, would be helpful to us all. And it's this. You don't do sin, sin does you. You don't do sin, sin does you. The book of Numbers says, be sure that your sin will find you out. You say, Pastor Tim, you're known for preaching the gospel. You're known for grace and mercy. You're known for the love of God. But there's also the truth that judgment 
occurs. That we reap what we sow. And as tense as those two may be to try to reconcile together, which I will do more so toward the end of this message, but the point of this story is, it's not an uplifting story. It's not an inspirational story. It's not a, why don't you be like Amnon and go rape somebody? You know, it's not. It's a story of what more not to do than to do. But where is God in all of this? He's silent. I don't see him saying anything. I don't see him doing anything. Does he care? Are we just on our own down here in this world and anything can happen to us? And we have to live the rest of our lives with a capital red A on our forehead or a capital red D on our forehead or a capital red R on our forehead or whatever letter you want to add. Is our identity ever fixed by our sin? I do think this story at least points the way in one respect for how we are to respond to victims of sexual abuse and violence. The church should not be covering that up or hiding that or calling it by another name or merely calling in authorities. It is the responsibility of the church to address that. And it is hard, especially within the church. Because it isn't outside the church alone that these things happen. I want to tell you, I've heard more that would curl my hair inside the church than I have out. And as you can see, you're pretty good people because my hair is straight. <laughs> but I don't know everything. God refuses to take part in any of these particular machinations of men. In fact, a high view of Scripture, as God's Word would suggest, that God is not silent. He is voicing Tamar's story through the inclusion of this text in the canon. She being dead still speaks. And God lets that voice ring out through the ages in history to speak up and express outrage. Only by doing so may we ensure that her voice is heard by us as God's people. And not that she would be desolate and buried forever within the confines of Absalom's house. In the story, Tamar is the only one with courage. The only one that had any fortitude. She makes a public statement against the violence. She tears her robe. She mourns. She's not silent. Though the society she lived in made her virtually powerless, vulnerable. But this story reminds us over and again of the effect sin has on our life. It's a sad point portrait of a once mighty king of Israel. It's a disturbing chapter. But here's where I want to speak to the Tamars in our world. The Tamars in our world. The victims in our world. Not victims that we see today in our culture who uh, enjoy victim. They are righteous by victimhood but rather to talk to true victims, people who've been overpowered or injured or hurt or destroyed. And I don't care what it is. For any person here who's a victim, who feel like because of your victimhood, you have somehow been relegated to a second-class kind of Christian, that you don't really have anything to offer or give her, your life has been ruined. There's always people around to tell you that, isn't it? 
Don't you love these souls who come to comfort you telling you, well, I know your life is ruined. Job's comforters, we call them. Your life is ruined. There's no hope for you. You're on the ash heap. You're on the dung heap. You got no life left. I even remember one very popular Christian leader who used to hold seminars all over the country, and I won't say his name, but it was Bill Gothard. <laughs> and Bill Gothard used to teach that if you go through any kind of victimhood in life, you are to be an example of the rest of your life to the suffering that falls upon us as human beings. No redemption, none. If you're divorced, stay divorced and testify to the rest of the world that you failed at marriage and this is what it looks like to fail at marriage, so you better stay in yours or you will be walking around like her. Is that gospel? Or is that law? So here's what I would say to you. I, I think this story teaches us a couple of things. This is the only way I've been able to get up here and preach this message is because of what I'm about to tell you. Is recovery possible? Yes. Even better than recovery is possible. It's a process. No pat answer is going to help you if you're a victim. No snap of the fingers is going to occur. It will be a long process of remembering two very important truths in your life. First, you are not alone. Second, there is hope. There is always hope. However you have been abused, whatever has happened to you that was evil however you were sinned against it could be in your family it could be uh, someone you went on a date with it could be uh, an employer it could be another employee that victimizes you every day remember you are not alone and remember there is hope God is mindful of your suffering and he hears your cries Never think that he doesn't care because he says in his word, cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. And so, one of the things we need to remember is, and we need to tell ourselves, is our identity is much bigger than our abuse. It swallows it up if your identity is in Christ. If you have been united with Jesus Christ, you may, as a person who's been abused, feel like an, uh, that experience has stamped its image upon you and has the final word on your identity. But your identity as God's child is far deeper than the abuse you have suffered. Did you hear that? Your identity as God's child is far deeper. Now, I know a lot of you said, well, why didn't God stop or why did God allow this? And my answer to you is the same answer I get when I ask that question. I don't know. But let me tell you what I do know. I have in my Bible Genesis 37 through 50, the life of Joseph. And Joseph's life... How can I say this in a uh, preachery way? Really sucked. His life was awful. Why? 
He was his dad's favorite son. Now, you can imagine all the brothers went, oh, well, he's daddy's favorite. He ought to be our favorite, too. No, they hated him. And, I, you know, some people have tried to tell me that Joseph never sinned. <laughs> I have brothers. I know how they rub things in your faces. And so one day his dad gave him this coat of many colors. It's really a coat without it, any pieces. It's a beautiful coat. Nobody else had one like that. And his brothers got enough of it, chunked him in a hole, sold him to some Midianite slaves going to Egypt, go home and tell his father he's dead. Now what if you were Joseph? One day you get this coat, your daddy's favorite. The next day you're on your way to Egypt as a slave to ungodly people. Not only that, but after he gets there, he does time. He goes to jail. Potiphar's wife gets the hots for Joseph. He must have been a good-looking man. And she tempts him over and over and over. And Joseph said, I cannot do this thing and sin against God. What happens to him for him? He goes to prison. And even the baker who's supposed to remember him when he gets out doesn't. But eventually he does get out and he rises to prime minister over Israel. And Jacob and his other sons are in the midst of a famine and they're starving to death and they got nowhere to go. So they go to the prime minister of Egypt who happens to be Joseph. Do you realize if his brothers hadn't thrown him in that pit, sold him to the Midianites, taken him to uh, uh, Egypt, Jesus would have never been born and we would have never had a Savior. Really? Really. You have no idea what particular thing has happened in your life to destroy you that God will bring about so much great goodness out of because that's who God is. He makes the wrath of man to praise him. And Joseph lines up his brothers and he fools with them and eventually discloses to him who he really is. And he said, when you did that to me, you meant that as evil toward me. But God meant it to save much people alive. If you've been abused, never forget what the writer tells us in 1 John, Behold what manner of love that God has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. We are adopted into his family. We are indwelt by his Holy Spirit. We wear the perfect robe of righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are heirs to all he has, joint heirs to all he has. This life is not all that there is. There may be a lot of suffering. Many of you go through a lot of suffering. I try to tell people who tell me I suffer a lot, that's because God loves you so much. You look back at me and say, I don't want him to love me that much. Never forget that. That's who you are. You are not what somebody else did to you. Secondly, your story is bigger than your abuse. God is redeeming your story. That is your life. Your story is not only about the pain of suffering, it's about Jesus taking what others meant for evil and redeeming it for a good purpose at his pleasure. And I don't know how everything's going to come out in the end and in the judgment and in the rewards and 
feasting with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But I suppose one day we will see how God took the most ugly, brutal thing that ever happened to us and used it to accomplish so much good, not only for ourselves, but for others. Well, Pastor, I don't feel that way. I get it. <laughs> I don't feel that way either a lot of the times, but what I do understand is the Bible is reality, and what the Bible speaks is truth, and that isn't always what we feel like. And so if you're grieving over this, seek help. Seek encouragement. Seek for those who can counsel you. But never forget you are not alone and there's always hope for you. And Christ never gives up on you. And some of the most beautiful things in my own life that have ever happened have happened because somebody abused me. Somebody mistreated me. Somebody betrayed me. Somebody did something unspeakable to me. And, and I'm not alone in that. I'm sure almost every person in the room can say that. But I can tell you that God has done more in me through that and accomplished more through me because of that than anything else. Not, certainly not my achievements in life. It's been more my suffering, less my achievements. So what about you? What about you? Christ bore our sin in his body on the tree. That's what Peter said. Took it down into death, paid for all the judgment it deserves in his own body. Resurrected him, proving that the payment is in full and that Christ's righteousness is now given to us. And that's the only way to live. It's the only way you can live in this world and possibly make any sense of it. Flee the wrath to come and run to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. It's been a hard one. It's been one you know that I wrestle with. I did not want to preach it. But yet at the same time, it's truth, and it's ugly truth, and it's raw, and it's real, and it's painful, and it's ugly. And yet, you are the God who is able to give us beauty for ashes. And you're the God who is able to restore the years the locusts have eaten away. And so, Father, we come to you. We open up our hearts to you. We repent of our bitterness. We repent of our hatred. We repent of our righteousness through victimhood. And we come to you for the fresh gift of life and righteousness in Christ. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give us people who are grateful that we're not alone and that there is always hope. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.